Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. church. How are we doing today? I am glad to be with you all. My name is Sean, if you don't know me, and my pen's falling out here for the crowd. Okay, so um, I'm excited to spend some time with you guys today, dive into our passage. And let me just say, I am feeling great this morning. Our five-month-old had the greatest night's sleep of her life last night. Yeah, so let's clap it up for that. I feel like a new man. I'm, I'm in a good place. Hope everybody had coffee. We're, we're going to do it today. We are in the seventh Sunday after Epiphany. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, which uh, was where we were last week as well. Pete preached uh, in Luke 6, beginning in verse 17, which is the start of what we call the Sermon on the Plain. And Pete mentioned this briefly, but we tend to be much more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount versus the Sermon on the Plain. That There are several similarities and differences between these two famous uh, sermons from Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, and just one small aside, if you are a wordle player, Mount and Plain, both great five-letter words, might want to start out with that, couple vowels, couple key consonants, added benefit of being biblical, so just something to think about if you're playing wordle, but Sermon on the Mount has nine Beatitudes, whereas the Sermon on the Plain has four. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew's Gospel and tends to be geared more towards a primarily Jewish audience. In that sermon, Jesus lays out the basics of obedience to God. There is an emphasis on the spiritual life of a person and how that spiritual life should be reflected in actions and in outcomes. The Sermon on the Plain, our text today and last week in Luke's Gospel, is geared more towards a Gentile audience, is a bit more practical and grounded in real life Issues. The hearers would have been less familiar with Jewish law, and they wouldn't have seen the connections that Jesus was making to Jewish law. So things tend to be a bit more practical, less fancy theological stuff. For example, Jesus in Luke talks, about, talks to the poor, versus in Matthew, he talks to the poor in spirit. Location is important, too. The Sermon on the Mount, as you could probably guess, was preached on a mountainside, and the Sermon on the Plain was preached on level ground. This is because in Luke's gospel, there is a great leveling and a great equalization. We heard from last week's text that the poor will receive riches, the the hungry will be satisfied, that those who weep will laugh. We'll see in just a moment how there's even a leveling between enemies and friends as they're put on equal footing. And this theme of equality is one we see throughout the Gospel of Luke because his depiction of Jesus as a prophet is not as one who foretells the future, but the one who enacts the future kingdom of God in the present where all are equal. Luke's Gospel is the account that gives the most details about Jesus' birth, the time he was born into, what the world is like. We always read it at Christmas time because he wants us to know that the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus were actual events in history. And the Gospel of Luke takes seriously a God who uses people, events, and all of the components of history to reveal God's purposes and to extend God's love to the entirety of his creation. And that's a belief that extends to you and me today as God still uses us for his his purposes in this moment in time in history. 
So in the text last week, which talked about the blessings and the woes, it really was an, an, an invitation to understand our identity as a disciple based on our connection to Jesus. Jesus says that we are blessed and we are transformed when we transform the life situations around us because of this connection. Again, we're still in the same sermon that Jesus is preaching. He's continuing to talk about our connection with God, but he's doing it in, with one minor shift. If last week was about the things that we receive, the blessings, the text this week looks at what our connection with God means for what and how and who we give and extend the blessings and mercy of God to others. So let's dive into the text. Verse 27 says, but to you who are listening, I say. Last week's passage began looking at his disciples, he said, or Jesus said, and now Jesus, he offers up another clarifying remark as to who he is speaking to. If, if the star of this sermon was the disciples now, Jesus is saying to you who are still listening to what I'm saying, after all that I just said, if your eyes haven't glazed over, if you still want to be a part of all of the things that I talked about, then I am talking to you. If you are on board with being challenged, if you are on board with giving up privilege, if you are on board with being hated because of me, if you're on board with giving up your wealth, if you're on board with the status quo being upended, if you are still with me after all of that, then I have another level to take you to. So I want to read through the passage one more time. It's not one of those like verse by verse ones. This is more of a big idea type passage from Jesus. It says this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." Now, if you do some digging into the context in which Jesus was speaking in this sermon, one of the first things that you'll read in just about every book, they'll talk about how society functioned during Jesus' time. Within this Hellenistic society, just a, a fancy term for the spread of Greek culture after Alexander the Great, there was a strong emphasis on reciprocity. The idea being that there was a high value in giving in order to receive, of blessing someone else in order to be blessed in the future, of lending right now because in the future you might need to borrow money from them. That it, that it wasn't about what you know, but about who you know and what you've done for me lately, which is, I think, totally true and a helpful context for this passage, but it also doesn't feel that far off from how we function as a society. 
It's not as if this mindset of, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch my back has, has gone away at all. Quid pro quos are still very prevalent and this type of reciprocity still very much exists. I mean, even think about the advent of uh, Venmo or the Cash App or Quick Pay, right? We're always making sure that we're paying one another back for everything, making sure everything is equal, which again, are not bad things at all. But we live in a similar society that Jesus is talking, one of reciprocity. We know what he is talking about. And so when Jesus says to his followers here, and then us as well, is that if they relate to others based on nothing more than reciprocity, then we won't be any different than anybody else. We won't stick out. That if we are to be followers of Jesus, we can no longer be motivated by gain of what we will get out of it, of loving because they will love us back, of, of lending because we know we need to borrow from them later on. That is the way that the world works. And if our faith in Jesus doesn't make us different from the world, then what are we even doing? Like he so often does, Jesus, he points us in a direction that feels completely opposite from the ways of the world. Again, he is talking to his followers who say they are on board with his message, his way of life, the ones who are still listening at this point. And he continues to upend how we think about pretty much everything. He says to love your enemies. He says to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you. And we'll see later on in this passage why this is the case. But the way in which Jesus talks about loving our enemies, doing good to those who hate us, curse us, or even strike us on the cheek is a way of responding and reacting to others that is not predicated on their behavior. Again, it's completely counterintuitive to the way in which we live. In fact, our response in these situations is diametrically opposed to the way that people treat us. Jesus says that the worse that someone is to you, the better you need to be to them. The type of love that Jesus talks about here is a love that says no matter what this person does to me or to us, we will never allow ourselves to desire anything but the highest good for them. It's a love that goes completely out of its way to be kind. It's about willing the good for another and acting on that will. As if we really listen to what Jesus is saying, he doesn't just say, you know, don't go an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. He doesn't even say, just, you know, think well of them. He says to love them with a the love that overflows so much that you can't help but do good to them and for them for your enemies, those you despise, those who you hate, those who hate you. And this type of love he just talks about is an act of love. And I know we just had Valentine's Day last week, and when we talk about romantic love, or maybe you talk about how you and your partner got together, we often use the phrase of falling in love. You know, we fell in love, that, that it's something that happens to us. It's, it might even be beyond our control that we were swept up into a moment and a feeling in a relationship, which is great and lovely and beautiful. But we don't really fall in love with our enemies. It doesn't just, we don't get swept up in love for our enemies, the people that are jerks to us, right? If we're going to have love for our enemies, it's not something that's going to just happen. It's an attitude of the heart and a choice that we make. And we're going to explore in just a moment how we can actually do that. But before we do, I think there is a big question that we need to ask ourselves when we hear Jesus' words in this passage Who are our enemies? or maybe on an individual level, who is my enemy? Kind of weird to think about, right? I don't, 
I, I don't hear Jesus say, love your enemies, and then I don't like picture my nemesis. And having an enemy kind of feels like superhero stuff, like thinking about your next fight with Thanos or the Joker or something, right? You're, you're worried about what your enemy is gonna do. It can be hard to connect with. I don't know, maybe, maybe you do have an enemy. You hear the word enemy and you're like ninth grade, Stephen Glansberg. I will never forget that person. He'll be my enemy forever. I hate that guy. Or maybe a little closer to home in the Bible, David sure seems like he had a lot of enemies. Talked about him a lot in the Psalms. He was constantly asking for deliverance from his enemies. That he was some of his enemies were surrounding him. He even asked God to break the teeth of his enemies. Probably not super loving. <laughs> we don't tend to talk about enemies in the same way that David might have. I do think that we have enemies, whether we are aware of it or not. And I think that word enemy might be a little bit of a block for us. That feels intense. Again, superhero type stuff. But maybe a more helpful way to frame an enemy is someone or a group that feels antagonistic to you, that, that works against what you work for, that opposes what feels important to you, someone who feels harmful to you, that doesn't have the same goals that you have. And I read this fascinating article in a sociology journal that, that talked about the creation of and, and the narration surrounding enemies, specifically you know, how it plays out in our news ecosystem today. And if you approach the, the topic of enemies from a sociological perspective, sociologists, they say that the creation of and then the defense against enemies, it actually creates social cohesion. It strengthens our social identity because we have this us versus them mentality. We have, if we can find a common enemy, then we can be bonded together, form our resolve as a group. I don't have to raise your hand, but maybe you grew up with the backdrop of communism, right, and the Red Scare, having a common enemy in the communists in fear of what they might do strengthened the resolve of the American people together for better and for worse. And our news ecosystem today continues to play on that idea, the idea of, of creating an enemy, because as weird as it sounds, it can be comforting to have an enemy to know that there is an enemy because that is an easy thing for us to focus on. So if, there, if the news says that there are radical terrorists, that is an easy enemy to promote and for us to hate. Or if there are protesters in the street, that is an easy enemy to promote for us to rally against. If there are immigrant caravans full of bad people, that is an easy enemy to promote. I mean, even after watching the Olympics these past few weeks, I'm like, man, I hate the Russians, right? You know, these enemies, they're cheaters. They don't deserve even to be competing. I'm like sitting on my couch in my pajamas watching figure skating, getting all upset, right? <laughs> I don't even know what's happening to me. This is the power that enemies have on us. And the enemies don't have to be people groups or other countries. More likely, they're local and proximate. When Jesus talks about them in this passage, he talks about people that are actively mistreating you or actively working against you. In our increasingly separated and polarized society, we increasingly see those who think and act and live differently as our enemies. Whether we're aware of it or not, our hearts become hardened to them, and deep down we begin to feel it. It begins to fester. So a bit of a thought experiment to see if anything might connect more with you than just the word enemy. How do you feel about duck fans? I love, huh? them. love them, love them, okay. 
How do you feel about Beaver fans? Yeah, yeah, right, okay, yeah. Don't like them either way, right? Okay, yeah, decent. How do you feel, how do you feel about your neighbors? Do you always really like your neighbors? How they park their cars? Do they, uh, do they shovel all their snow? Are they loud late at night? Are they loud early in the morning? Do they have a crying baby keeping you up? How do you feel about out-of-staters? All these people moving to Oregon, moving to Bend, they're the worst, right? Bend used to be this great place, small place. I can't stand people from out-of-state. Or maybe more specifically, what about Californians? Huh? Oh, easy to hate Californians. Driving up the prices on all the houses, housing market's crazy, right? How do you feel about locals? Huh? They're always saying, Bend isn't the way it used to be. Always complaining about that. Ben's changed. Oh, how do you feel about people live out in the country? All the way out there, you know, they live maybe in Prineville, you know, Lapine. Oh, those Madras people. I know a few Madras people that are the worst, right? How do you feel about Republicans? Oh, what about Democrats? Huh? What about independents? What about people that don't vote? Huh? How do you feel about progressive Christians? Can that even be a thing? What about conservative Christians? Should that be a thing? <laughs> okay, we're doing it, okay? How do you feel about the police? Oh, it got quiet. How do you feel about protesters? Maybe more specifically, how do you feel about Black Lives Matter protesters? Or maybe it's different if it's Canadian trucker protesters. Do you feel different about people who protest based on that? How do you feel about someone with a different mask preference than you? <laughs> How do you feel about someone with a different vaccination status than you? How do you feel about someone who's rich? Or maybe just richer than you? How do you feel about someone who's poor, or doesn't have a job, maybe they're lazy, they don't work? They don't even have a house. Maybe they live on the streets. They're, they're making Bend so dirty. How do you feel about those folks? How do you feel about the coworker that's always late? Or the one that's obnoxiously early, makes you look bad to your boss, right? How do you feel about the coworker that schedules a meeting when it could have been an email? Any of those things hit close to home for you? Maybe, maybe you wouldn't have described one of those folks as your enemy a few moments ago, but you probably would have said you didn't have any enemies. But that would be kind of an excuse to miss out on Jesus' teaching here. Because I think if we can get past getting hung up on the word enemy, that we can realize that we harbor some resentment and some ill will for folks who think differently than us. That resentment can fester. And someone you disagree with might become your enemy without you even realizing it. Some of those groups of people might feel like they're working in opposition to what you're working towards, that, that their goals are not your goals, that they don't feel like they're on the same team as you. If that is the case, then Jesus tells us that those are the people that you and I need to start with loving the most. And this teaching from Jesus falls into one of those categories where the good news always doesn't feel like good advice. You know, it's like, oh, that's kind of bad advice, Jesus. I don't want to do anything for those people. That wouldn't be right. They, they do not deserve it. 
But I think Jesus is giving us another glimpse into the upside-down kingdom of God. In verse 31, we see Jesus say, do to others as you would have them do to you. We know this idea well. We teach it to our kids. It's the golden rule. How you want to be treated is how you should treat others. Dallas Willard talks about the golden rule like this. He says, the golden rule is devoted to the good in the lives of those around us. And this reaches far beyond the mere absence of harm. It aspires toward a remarkable richness in their lives, not simply the alleviation of their suffering. That sounds pretty hard. But in verse 36, we see Jesus elevate what he expects to us, even beyond the golden rule. Verse 36 says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You've heard me say this before, but this is a different way of describing what's known as the platinum rule. Not only should we treat others as we want to be treated, we need to treat others as God treats them. Because the truth is that, that we don't deserve how God treats us. We haven't earned being called God's children. We see that God lavishes mercy and generosity on us because that is who he is. And Jesus says that you and I are to live and to love the same way. And this theme of mercy is all throughout Luke's gospel. Even in passages that we've preached, even in the past few months, we see it in Mary's song, twice God is described as merciful. In Zechariah's song, twice God is described as merciful. Here in our passage today, we are called to be merciful as the Father is merciful. Because God's gifts flow from his mercy, and that when we see and experience God's mercy, it hopefully creates a people that want to serve God, not out of fear, but in response to his goodness and his generosity. Because the kingdom that Jesus was announcing here in Luke's gospel that continues today was all about a glorious and fantastical and absurd generosity. I mean, this teaching from Jesus is truly ridiculous. The text doesn't say this, but anybody who heard Jesus say this about your enemies, those who steal from you, mistreat you, curse you, people who are hostile to what's important to you, that you should love them, they were probably laughing out loud at how dumb this was. It's absurd. Jesus' advice here is a recipe for disaster, but that is how the kingdom works. Jesus says to think of the best thing that you can do for the worst person that you know and go ahead and do it. Who is that for you? Who is the worst person that you know? Someone who you say, I can't believe that they live that way or that they voted that way or that they talk that way or that they actually believe that. He says to think of what you would really like for someone to do for you and to do it for that person especially if you don't get along or if you don't see eye to eye. He says to think of the people that you are tempted most to be rude and mean and nasty to and to lavish generosity on them instead. On that list we talked about before, who might that be for you? Because the central point that Jesus is making is that you are to be like this because God is like this. You're to be like this because God is like this. God is generous to all people, friend and foe, good and bad, those who agree with you and those who don't. You know, if God was just like a regular person in our lives, we would say that he's generous to a fault and he needs better boundaries. <laughs> he provides good things for all to enjoy, those that we label as deserving and undeserving. 
I mean, if we offer up self-reflection on our own lives, attitudes, thoughts, and actions, we would say that we know that God is astonishingly merciful. We know that because I can't count the number of times I've messed up, said something I shouldn't have, done something I didn't want to, didn't act with love, or just totally got it wrong. I know how merciful God has been to me. And what Jesus is saying is that if we know that we have been adopted into his family and that we are his forgiven children in light of all that we've done, why should we treat anyone any differently than God treats them? They're our brothers and sisters. Only when we realize how truly merciful and generous and absurd God is will we have any chance of making this way of life our own. Because loving our enemies, loving those we disagree with or don't get along with or just really don't like, this love is indicative of a new way of life. Everything in our souls, everything in the world tells us to respond to these specific people or groups or ideas, whatever it is for you, to go punch for punch, to go word for word, to go blow for blow. We have to choose to live our lives not by responding like this, but by being connected to Jesus. Instead of reacting with words and actions that respond to hurt with more hurt, we are called to break that cycle and to respond with grace and kindness. To focus so much on grace that we forsake like the greatest feeling in the world, the feeling of being right. Oh, I love being right. We have to forsake that feeling and make sure that they know that there's grace instead. We're called to take on the posture of humility and respond with grace and kindness when all we want to do is dunk on somebody else, right? It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. You can still think that your way of thinking is better, but Jesus says, if you are to be my follower, you must start with love. The reality here is that Jesus' call in the Sermon on the Plain to love our enemies is not just something that we can try our best to make happen. We can't just grit our teeth and say in the mirror in the morning, I'm going to be nice to people that aren't nice to me. Jesus' call here is to live contrary to our human nature, and the only way that we can act on what Jesus is saying is if we live out of the power that comes from Jesus himself. Again, living this way is unnatural to us. But we can only respond to hurt with forgiveness as Christ is our strength, and we are dependent on the Spirit of God inside of us. When we are connected to Jesus, we give out of abundance. Whether that's practical items in this passage we see, like coats or money, or whether it's giving out grace and mercy and forgiveness, when we are in Christ Jesus, we know that we have more than we could ever need. We give knowing that we share in the riches of God's kingdom, that we give out of the great storehouse of God of the only currency that truly matters is love. Whether we like it or not, we are bound to one another as children of the Most High, and that matters more than settling the score or one-upping someone or making it clear that we are right. We see that in the kingdom of God, there is a great reversal that draws us toward one another. Because if we as followers of Jesus are called to pray for our enemies, that might mean that our enemies are praying for us too. And if that is the case, my enemy is now the one who blesses me. This is the upside down kingdom at work. 
And one of the people who took Jesus' words here seriously and lived them out was Desmond Tutu. He's a South African bishop. He's a theologian, leader of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the end of apartheid. And Tutu says, if you want peace, don't talk to your friends. Talk to your enemies. He says that the more that we do this, we can get to the place to see that in God's family, there are no outsiders, there are no enemies, just brothers and sisters. That this is what the living spirit of God inside of us can do. And we see the perfect example of this type of love centered in the cross. Jesus put these words into action. They, they struck him on the cheek. They ripped his coat and shirt off his back. And he didn't respond blow for blow. He went right on loving and forgiving all the way to the end. And he didn't only show love to his friends, but to his enemies as well, weeping over the city that had just rejected his pleas for peace. And on that cross, you and I didn't deserve his mercy and forgiveness, and he gave it anyway. He was a true embodiment of the God of whom he spoke, of being merciful for the Father is merciful. Ultimately, how we respond to Jesus' teaching here answers a question in our lives, and that question is, which God do you believe in? Do you believe in a vengeful God? One who goes punch for punch? Do you believe in a God who holds grudges? A God who never forgets how you mistreated him or cursed him or messed up? Do you believe in a stingy God, one who's keeping a tab on lending, making sure he gets paid at, doling out grace only in small measures? Do you believe in a God who helps only those who help themselves? You know, one of the most famous Bible passages, not in the Bible. (laughs) Only those that are deserving get to be with God. Or do you believe in a God who is generous and merciful and loving? A God who treats each one of us as his children, who showers us with grace and loves us, especially when we fall short. So maybe we've heard this passage or Jesus talking about loving our enemies 500 times. And now we ask ourselves, are Jesus' words actually possible? And the point here is not to provide his followers with a new rule book or more boxes to check or a longer list of do's and don'ts but to illustrate an attitude of the heart and a lightness of spirit in the face of all that the world can throw at you because you have more than you could ever need in the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus. Yet if you believe in a generous and merciful God, you'll be generous and merciful to those around you, even if they are your enemy, even if they think or act or live differently than you. So, Antioch family, may we be a people who live into and out of the same mercy that God has lavished on us and change the world with our love for those around us, whether we like them or not. Now, Pastor Amy is going to come up and lead us in the practice of communion and we come to the table with people who might just be our enemies.